So as I was saying, and we are live, uh, this has been the reason why I wanted to get into the book of James. So verses 14 through 26 of the second chapter. If you ever ask anybody about the book of James, have they read the book of James? What are your thoughts about the book of James? 99% of the time, they will reference this passage, or at least some part of this passage. Faith without works is dead. And that's really the only thing that people really think the book of James is about. What we've done in like, how many weeks have we been in this book so far? Was it like five weeks, six weeks maybe, four weeks? Some, somewhere between four and six weeks, I don't remember. We're just on the middle part of the second chapter. And the reason why I wanted to go very slow, very methodical, and really prove my case as far as what this letter is about is because of this passage right here. This passage is highly misunderstood, highly misinterpreted, and highly misapplied. How we understand this passage will dictate how we view the character of God, will dictate how we view our standing in Christ, and what we do with our faith in the midst of our life and our situations. And so I just want to get to the passage. We're going to read the passage. Tonight is going to be more of a discussion, more of an overview, if you will. We're going to talk about some main things about this passage. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll actually dig into the verses themselves. So right now it's just going to be a cursory overview, what some thoughts are, and then next week we'll dig into it very clearly. But James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, I want to read them first and we'll move forward. In verse 14, James writes, What doth profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, notwithstanding ye give him not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac upon his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so that's the passage we're going to be in the next three weeks. First, right off the bat, I'm curious. What are some various ways you have heard this passage taught, uh, preached? What are your thoughts on this passage? I open it up to the floor. Bill. One, I guess one quote is, uh, I've heard is you're, we're saved by faith alone, but not by faith, which is alone. Okay, yep. And I don't know if that can really be attributed to a particular well, person that they say it is, that's up in the air, but right. it is a real statement. Right, yep. There's many uh, people that will say that same statement or various nuances of it, that you're saved by faith alone, but you're not saved by faith that is alone, if you will. Uh, anybody else? Hey, Freddie. Any, anybody else heard anything about this or what you may have thought? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Matthew seven. A lot of people will take Matthew seven fifteen by your fruit by their fruits you will know them, and they'll equate fruit with works, and by their works you will know whether or not they're a true Christian or not. And that's totally not what Jesus is saying. And we could talk more about that. But yeah, exactly. Anybody else? If not, I got some things I could show what different people say about it. Okay. I mean, I've yeah. Heard, like people judging other people and saying like they don't have good works or not saved. I mean, just yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much just judging them because they're not living their faith. Right. So they say that they're not yep. genuine. Right. No, so that, that's a big thing today too. Is they while people don't teach to be a fruit inspector, they subconsciously and indirectly teach to be a fruit inspector, saying that if you don't have fruit in your life, works as a Christian, then you probably aren't a genuine Christian. You never really believed, and you're not saved, and you're going to hell. And so that places all the emphasis on my eternal security based upon what I do, not what Christ has done when he said it is finished in our faith in him. So definitely that's one thing that a wrong, applica- wrong understanding breeds a wrong application. Like you said, we're going around saying, oh, you're not a Christian. Remember who was here a while back when I had that lesson talking about the McNamara fallacy and outliers? Anybody remember that? Where he talked about some people bring up the charge that a true Christian can never become a Satanist or a murderer or something like that. So we talked a little bit about that. And we looked at people that hold to this type of theology, which we're talking about here in a minute. They teach a message of condemnation. They'll teach that if you're doing X, Y, or Z, then you're probably not a Christian. And if you have left your faith, if you rebelled, say you got saved at 10, 18, whatever, and then you had a season, three, four, five years, you walked away from your faith, they'll be like, well, you probably were never a Christian to begin with, and so you need to get saved. That is condemning them, as opposed to what we'll put under the banner of free grace, saying that salvation truly is by faith alone. It says somebody in that case, it's not that they never were saved, it's that maybe some tragedy happened. Maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe they lost a family. Maybe they lost a job. Maybe they don't have answered prayers that they've been praying for for years. And so they just gave up and they gave into their flesh and they walked away. Instead of it being a message of condemnation, it should be a message of reconciliation. Find out what's wrong. Why do you not go to church anymore? Why have you left your faith? Things like that. And so bad, bad understanding, bad interpretation, bad application. I like Warren Wiersbe. I have both of his New Testament, uh, uh, his New and his Old Testament commentaries. I don't re- reference them a lot anymore, but this is what he says as far as James chapter 2. Where was it? James chapter 2. The question in James 2.14 should read, can that kind of faith save him? What kind? 
the kind of faith that is never seen in practical works? The answer is no. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life is a false declaration. So here Warren Wiersbe says, and I like most of what he writes, but in this particular passage, he says, if you don't have works, if you have this dead faith James is talking about, then you're not saved. Then you have another one that I use. This is by William McDonald, not James McDonald with Walking the Word, but William McDonald. He says this, James insists that a faith that does not result in good works cannot save. James does not say, what does it profit though a man has faith? Rather, he says, what does it profit if someone says he has faith? In other words, it's not a question of who truly has faith and yet is not saved. It's a man who is nothing but a profession. He says he has faith, but there is nothing in his life that indicates it. And you go on, he says that that, such, that type of faith is useless and worthless. And when you read these commentaries in context, they're saying, if you don't have works, you are not a Christian. You are damned and still going to hell. Mike. Uh, I have a problem with, I know you're not teaching that. Uh-huh. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. <clears throat> Yeah. If you don't have the work, same works as I have, then you're damned to hell. Right. What it means is they're judging you by what they do. Right. You know, like they may say, well, if you don't read six verses <coughs> or six chapters of the Bible that right. like I do, then you're not saved. He set himself up as the standard mm-hmm. for what is a Christian. Right. And, and you're going to find, I have found out, and I'm sure most people have too, that there are places in our lives where each, we all have our strengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally right. Uh, yep. You know, there's a lot of things that I wish I could get better at. I pray right. about those things. Yeah. Uh, but really, yeah. I, I don't know what the passage is, but mm-hmm. uh, Paul was the writer, and he referenced, you know, judging other people or measuring other people by themselves, mm-hmm. and, you know, either in Corinthians or accusing mm-hmm. the other people, you know. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. You know, so you have to live a person to cry. I've heard that. And you, you're not bearing any fruit. Mm-hmm. You have nothing. You know, I've heard that too. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that do to somebody who's a brand new Christian? Push them away. Well, you know? Uh, and so. Call them a gospel doubt. You know? Yeah, right. Uh, yep. I mean, it, it doesn't reaffirm what you've already been taught. Right. Yeah. You know, it tears you away. Well, you know, well, maybe God would mean what he said in the Bible. Right. Right. Yep. And we'll get there, uh, talk about that as well. So the title of tonight's message, I, I actually left it to uh, Gabe to pick out because I couldn't think of it. But it, it we'll talk about why. James versus Paul, who was right. That's the title of the message tonight. All right. And so I'll come back to that. Who is this right here? Uh, John MacArthur. John MacArthur says this, faith that has no product, that gives no evidence. It is my constant fear, frankly, that many, many people within the framework of Christianity are involved to one degree or another in the church, possess nothing more than that kind of faith, dead faith. 
James realizes that in the church there are people who can be self-deceived, self-deluded, and ultimately damned because he sees this passage as soteriological, meaning that this passage is talking about eternal life and how to know you have it. He teaches, and a lot of them teach as well, something that's called spurious faith. Has anybody ever heard the term spurious faith? Basically, spurious faith is a false faith, a faith that is not uh, effective. In other words, since they, a lot of these people believe in the doctrine of election, unconditional election, they teach that some people have this, they really, truly, genuinely believe they're saved, but they really don't have this faith that saves. So they have this false faith. So they're going through life with a spurious faith, and they talk a lot about that. Well, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. No, you're totally right. One of the things that's always, uh, you know, made me reject lordship salvation, which is what this is. This banner is under lordship salvation. Lordship salvation is different from Calvinism. It's a form of Calvinism. Calvinism teaches lordship, but just because you're lordship, it doesn't mean you're Calvinist. You can be Arminian. And what? Oh, he, he's a Calvinist. I'm just saying that what we're talking about, lordship salvation, which is what this passage is used as, is not a Calvinist teaching. It's, it's sort of own teaching. It's within Calvinism, but Arminians teach it as well. But, so, the other issue I have with lordship is the fact that you're talking about emotions, right? Oh, emotion, oh yeah, whatever. Whenever we're called to inspect whether or not someone's a genuine believer or not, how many hours during the week do you guys see me? You see me a lot, right? If there's one person in here that would know, if I have to prove my salvation by my works, if there's one person in here that would know if I'm true or not as a Christian by my works, it would be none of y'all. It would be my wife right here. You guys see me two hours a week, right? Based off those two hours a week, you might see me up here preaching, but every hour after that, I might be acting like a sailor. I might be beating my wife. I might be claiming I'm an atheist, whatever, Satanist, and I might just be doing this for the pay. Pay is great, (laughs) right? But uh, no, I'm very blessed here. So what you guys don't see is how I live my life every other hour that week. And then you don't see the consistency. And oh, by the way, my wife that sees me almost every single day, she doesn't know if the things that I'm doing are because I'm being led and want to do it in obedience to God, or if I want to do it because my selfish pride and motivation if I do anything by my heart and not by the Spirit, I'm not going to get rewarded for that or blessed for that. So nobody can truly know if the works are born of the Spirit or the flesh. Well, and then my... I guess that's one thing that this could actually play a role into. I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of individual examination. It's a matter of kind of like not necessarily that you're damned to hell if you don't mm-hmm. do certain works, but you could, I mean, especially as a young Christian, you can probably... Mm-hmm. Well, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He doesn't say examine yourselves to see if you're in Christ. He says if you're in the faith. There's a big difference there. Once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ sealed from that moment. 
But there may be moments in our life where we're not in the faith, we're not living the faith, we're not active, we're not true to our convictions. It does not mean we're not in Christ. Paul says, if you're in the faith, examine myself, examine my works, my tongue, what I'm doing. Am I living the faith actively, which is what we're ultimately going to see in this passage next week. That's what he's talking about. So, Mike. I'll give you a hypothetical answer. Okay. Is it possible for a fig tree to be a fig tree and not bear fruit? Is it possible for a fig tree to be a fig tree and have no fruit on it? And have no fruit on it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. Is it possible for a fig tree to produce roses? No. Uh, but my point is this. When Christ one time acted, was hungry, and came to a fig tree. Mm-hmm. And cursed it. And that's right. Because mm-hmm. there was no figs on it. Mm-hmm. Well, does that mean it wasn't a fig tree? Right. Mm-hmm. Just didn't have no fruit. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of times, you know, and I'm not saying this is the true application. Right. Uh, there are times in our lives when we're fruitless, mm-hmm. you know, yep. in some respect. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we're not a Christian. Right. It just means we're unproductive yep. at that time. Yep. You know. um, yep. A true understanding of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, I think it is, where it says, uh, if a tree, uh, a branch doesn't bear fruit, he's cut off, cast into the fire. It has nothing to do with eternal life. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with the process of viticulture in the day in agrarian society on how to actually get fruit or vines to produce. And that word cut off in the Greek arrow, I think it is, could also mean to lift up, prop up. So in that passage in John 15, when you have a vine that's just stuck on the ground, chances are that vine's not going to produce fruit. So what needs to happen is anybody familiar with trellises and vines and growing, you have to lift it up so it can get the sunlight, get off the ground, things like that, to produce that fruit. And so you're right, Mike, you know, and proper understanding of John 15 will help us clarify and understand what happens with those Christians that have fruitless lives you know, examine ourselves, and we could go all day long, you know, I, my second book, Free Grace, Biblical Sketch, talks about that, and one of the aspects for a fruitless Christian is discipline in your life, period, dot. Hebrews talks about it, there's so many negative commands in scripture that Paul says, you should stop doing this, and so there's so many aspects of what happens to a Christian that's not living their faith, but how many people know who this is? I like, I like his voice. Yeah. I like his voice. Is he Scottish or Irish? And so I like listening to him. Right? But, and this is just going to show, outside of John MacArthur, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Dealing with soteriology, I would ignore MacArthur. Dealing with spiritual warfare and things like that, I, I, I like MacArthur. There's some good with MacArthur and his teachings. I don't want to get rid of everything, but dealing with soteriology, I think he's completely wrong. Alistair Begg, I just like his voice. He's got a cool voice, European voice. And uh, I like a lot of what he says, but here in James 2, he says, only those who obey him have truly heard and been transformed by the gospel. As the reformers observed, it is faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is not alone. That is the real test of those who name the name of the Lord, is that they depart from iniquity. Therein lies the evidence of genuine faith. This is right from his website. I think it's truth for life, Alistair Begg. And so I'm not saying everything he's taught is bad and foul and run away. I'm saying... 
he gets James 2 completely wrong. MacArthur gets James 2 completely wrong. We're going to find out why. And so what he's saying is if you do not depart from iniquity, then you have no evidence of genuine faith. Anytime you hear someone talk about genuine faith, real faith, true faith, they should, should throw flags up because they're going to be pushing a lordship message. So what about this guy? I like him. Huh? True faith, right. Right, yep. I like David Jeremiah. Shadow Mountain Bible Church, I think is what it is. Community Church. Yeah, I like him. <sighs> the evidence you are truly converted is that you will continue on, perseverance as saints. If only most of Americans have been told that they would not be resting in false security today, the evidence you are truly converted is that you will continue on. Oh, apparently I just copied. I like that saying so much I pasted it twice on there. <laughs> but uh, so... Again, he's saying if a Christian doesn't continue in good works, you have false security. Where does a security of our salvation come from? Jesus Christ. Why? Because he... Exactly. Exactly. But yet so many times these people want to say, if you're not continuing persevering, you don't have this real faith. Matter of fact, you have a false sense of security, and you have this spurious faith. You think you're a Christian, but guess what? When you die, you're going to hell, because you haven't endured to the end. This is what a lot of them teach with under the Lordship banner. Looks like you're going to say something, Mike. I just have a problem with what, what they mean, persevere. What the, what, what, it depends on who you talk to in, in what type of Calvinist or Lordship or Arminian. It depends on who you talk to. I'm not going to say there's a blanket, but most often they're referring to Matthew chapter 24. I think it's verse 13. Uh, but he that enters to the end shall be saved. And they use a couple other va- passages as a proof text fallacy. And what they say is a true Christian will persevere in the faith. They will never walk away from their faith. They will never have a constant period of, of uh just constant rebellion and disobedience to God, living in sin, they will not do that. They will persevere in their faith. Now, they will admit you can have seasons and periods of bad works or disobedience, whatever, but they can never articulate how often, how long can that season be, how many bad works can that season be. They will never be able to articulate, and they never do. And so that's what typically they mean, and that's typically a perseverance of the saints Calvinist banner. Were you going to say something, Will? Okay, we'll just move on. I'm just kidding. I just pulled something up that I just never realized. Yeah. How do you differentiate between the word believe and faith? Every time I ask you how that is different, verse 19, as a Greek word believes, is key, whatever, and then with faith throughout that chapter, it's listed. So, I mean, are they highly doubt they're saying that's a double tap? We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Chelsea. I just had a question. Um, yeah. Like when you get saved, you have the want to grow. Okay. To learn more. Okay. Do you, does like, he give you that? Does he not give you the same to want to do the works and want to do things? That's a good question. L- l- let me ask. Well, how many people when they got saved had a discipler right away, a mentor, a spiritual mentor? Okay, soon after, yeah. Okay, I did too. I was thankful I had, you know, Matt, Pastor Ken. 
what happens a lot of time in the church is a lot of time because, like Jesus says, faith is simple, simple enough for a child to receive, right? So since faith is salvation by faith alone, it's a free gift, it's a simple message, look to the cross, my sins, I can't get there, Jesus Christ paid the price, death, burial, resurrection, only through him I can go to heaven, okay? When that message is preached and somebody comes to saving faith, most of the time there is nobody there to mentor them. There is a process of what's known as regeneration. Titus 3, 5 talks about the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit within us that God does. At that moment, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So yes, what some people will teach is from that period, we will have this totally different inclination to do good and to know to reject bad. My problem with that, if it happens at that moment, almost every single Pauline epistle Paul writes is to Christians. And he is constantly telling them, stop doing this. Stop doing this. Because Paul talks about there's still this battle between the flesh and the spirit. A brand new Christian that's never been discipled, doesn't have a spiritual mentor, they have to understand and learn what's the difference between the conscience, the heart, and the spirit's impulse, you know? That comes from experience, that comes from spiritual mentors, things like that. So while a lot of times, yes, it sounds good, it sounds accurate, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. for if anyone is a new, new creation in Christ, behold, all things pass away and all things become new. Yes, that's true. But then differentiating the spirit, the flesh, the conscience, the heart, that comes from discipleship, mentorship, and most Christians, when they get saved, they don't have that. And so when I got saved, I was still drinking up a storm. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it still. I wanted to get tattoos with Matt and go witness to people, you know. <laughs> Look at my Matthew 7 here. Fruit, fruit, fruit. It was through Matt and Pastor Ken and other people that helped grow me and mature me. And so that's why discipleship is heavily emphasized in the New Testament. Most all the, all the epistles in the New Testament are discipleship letters, not salvific letters. And so that's what I would say as far as that. Yes, we had the indwelling of the Spirit. Now we have the ability through the Spirit to overcome sin. If we relinquish our flesh and our desires to the Spirit's leading, we can have that overcoming in sin. But how do I do that? How do we discern the difference between the flesh, the heart, the Spirit? That comes again through prayer. And if I just got saved and then I go back living a gang-banging lifestyle, what do I know about praying? What do I know about reading the Bible? I was at a Billy Graham crusade, heard the gospel message. I believed it in that moment. I'm saved. But guess what? Now I don't have anybody to grow me, disciple me. That's a huge part in the, in the church. So that's, does that help a little bit? So, so I bring these up in these commentaries just to show how this is commonly referred to, interpreted. We talked a little bit as far as the bad understanding, the bad interpretation, and the bad application. This brings up what many people may have heard as far as a contradiction between the Apostle Paul and James here. There is a controversy because James says, and you just heard John MacArthur, Jeremiah, Alistair Begg, William McDonald, and Warren Wearsby saying that if you don't have works, you don't have a real faith, and you're not a Christian. After all, that's what James 2.14 says, what is it profit? Though you say you have faith, but you don't have works. The controversy comes in when Paul says countless times, and this is just all I can put on my screen, salvation is by faith alone, period. 
if there is any works added to the faith that we had to place in Christ for the salvation we received, if there is anything I had to do to have, obtain, maintain, or keep, it is no longer of grace. Because grace is something we cannot work for. Paul says we conclude a man justified by faith without the deeds of the law. To him that believes not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted or imputed for righteousness. Meaning, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, there's a term called imputation. Not amputation, right? But imputation. It's where the righteousness of Christ was applied on us. So now God doesn't look at us through the filth of our sins. He looks at us, looks at us through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. But if we believe on Christ, our faith is counted for righteousness. So now we are righteous in God's eyes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we all know this one, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then you got Galatians 2.16. Man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Here in this passage in James chapter 2, he says, you see how faith wrought with his works. By works, faith was made perfect. In verse 22, in verse 21, it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Wasn't he justified by his works and his faith was made perfect? But Paul says here, you're not justified by your works. Controversy. This is what the issue is that people bring up. And so what they say is, Paul's saying you have this faith alone message, but James is really supplementing it, saying you have a faith alone message, but a faith alone is never alone. And that's what they say. That's what we talked about. Bill brought it up, and we looked at it, quotes from the reformers. In essence, they say that Paul is a faith alone message, and James is a faith plus works message that you have to have works in order to be saved. Now, this is from David L. Cooper. He really for, form, not formulized, well, I'm going to say formulized because all words are made up. You've heard me say that before. But he formulized the principles of dispensational hermeneutics. And he says, something we already know, study every statement in context. The text apart from its context is a pretext to a proof text. So what we got to do is study the facts of the context in light of the related passages so the surrounding passage, and the self-evident axiomatic fundamental truths. In other words, what we should do is take that one verse in James. What does that passage say? What does the letter of James say? And what does the Bible say about what principle we think James is talking about? If James is saying faith without works is dead, you're not saved, you're going to hell, you're damned unless you have works, what does the letter say? What does the Bible say in its totality as far as that's concerned? And we're going to look at that. We're going to find out there really is no controversy, period, between James and between Paul. We're going to find out why so many people get it wrong, but a couple things I want to point out is, number one, a big term called dispensational hermeneutic. We'll get into this here in a minute, but there's a difference between what's known as dispensational and covenant theology, and that's where a lot of this hang-up is. You have the LGH method. Anybody remember what LGH stands for, method of interpretation? Literal, grammatical, historical. Yep, and so basically literal, grammatical, historical, we want to seek the literal meaning, the grammatical meaning, and the historical meaning of that verse. And we've said this one before. 
And we'll say it again. It's a question we have always got to ask, especially with these, if you will, trigger words or important words. Save from what? Can that faith save him? Save from what? The word save doesn't always mean eternal life or hell. The word fire does not always mean hell. It can mean purification. It can mean judgment and chastisement and discipline. We have to ask that question from what? What happens here is most people commit the fallacy of equivocation. They're changing the definition of a word within the argument to say two things or the same thing when context clearly reveals it should be defined some other way. In this passage, we're going to be focusing on some key words. Can that faith save him? Can that faith save what is a dead faith? Is a dead faith a faith that's not even existent? And then we're going to examine the phrase, what doth it profit? That's what the central of this passage is about. It's about the profitability of somebody's faith with works or their faith without works. That's where the crux of the matter is. And we're going to get to that in the next two weeks. That's why it's going to be like a three-week time in this passage. Because again, I laid the foundation for the last few weeks to get to this point, And we're going to revisit some of those things. How do we get to all these big names to interpret it this way? Well, there's a difference between dispensational hermeneutic and those that hold to what's known as covenant theology. Dispensational, how many people are, very f- are familiar with dispensational? Okay, most of the time we think of dispensational, we're thinking of uh, the management of God over human affairs through periods. But there's so much more to dispensationalism than just that. Dispensations, dispensationalism is actually biblical. It is actually a term found within Ephesians chapter 1. It deals with the stewardship or the management of affairs, if you will. Most of the time when people think of dispensation, they think of there's It could be as little as four to like 12 dispensations or ways God has instituted a command to obey, a result of failure, then a uh, restitution, if you will. And so there's different dispensations. Dispensation of innocence is one in the garden before the fall. Dispensation of conscience, what happened after the fall. Now Adam and Eve had the conscience. Disposition, uh, dispensation of human government after the flood. God established the governmental system dispensation of the law, the Old Testament under the Mosaic law, dispensation of grace, now that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, we would be in the dispensation of grace. Then you have some others like dispensation of the millennial kingdom and eternal order, stuff like that. And it's all about how is Jesus Christ revealed? How does God intervene with mankind? It's a stewardship aspect. Within dispensational hermeneutics, one of the foundations of interpretation is the same foundations you and I use every day when we're reading a book, an article, a letter. It's the same principle. Read it literal unless context dictates otherwise. I'm not going to go to the Song of Solomon and think that the Shulamite bride has like a a long nose the size of Tower of Lebanon, you know? And so I'm going to understand the symbolism that's within that book. And if I'm reading the Gospels or if I'm reading Acts or I'm reading Exodus, it's a historical narrative. I'm going to understand it as a historical narrative, only seeking to find a symbolism if the context dictates otherwise. Psalms, for instance, 
Some of the Psalms is a historical aspect, but I'm not going to think God is a rock golem with feathery wings, even though some of the Psalms have anthropomorphisms and they give characteristics to God, not saying he's like that, but they're using it as a symbol. So dispensationalism, we seek to understand scripture literally unless the context clearly dictates otherwise. There's a dis difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's a difference between Israel and the church. We are not Israel. If we as Christians, Gentile Christians, were Israel, that means God broke his unconditional covenants to Israel and gave them to us. Essentially, that's what it says as far as Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the seed covenant, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant. God unconditionally covenanted with Israel says, I will do this. There's only two conditional covenants in scripture, the Edenic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. That's it. Every other one was unconditional. If we as Gentile Christians became Israel, then God broke, essentially he broke his promises with the covenants he made with Israel. Also, that leads to a poor, when we get to the covenant side, poor exegesis as far as the, uh, the end times. Dispensational hermeneutic typically leads to a premillennial view. A premillennial view teaches the fact that the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, where he establishes his kingdom on earth, that he will come back first and then establish that kingdom. You have what's known as the post-millennial, which is the thousand-year reigns, and then Jesus Christ comes back. And then you have what's known as amillennial, which ah means no or none, and they teach no millennial kingdom, no thousand years, and it's all just figurative or symbolic. But a dispensational literal hermeneutic, we see a premillennial view of eschatology. All right, now covenant theology. When you're thinking of Calvinism, when you're thinking of the Reformed, I think we talked about this weeks back. If I don't really, really remember it, I don't expect anybody else to. But your Reformed, your Calvinist, your Lordship, they're going to be under what's known as covenant theology. It's a totally different hermeneutic. It's a totally different interpretation. All right, as you can see up here, they don't believe in dispensations like what dispensationalism teaches. And the errors of dispensation, okay, innocence, law, conscience, those could be argued. But you will never find in Scripture what, what they call the covenant of works or covenant of grace or even the covenant of redemption, which most they don't hold to, but there's two covenants. Covenant of works, they say, they say that if Adam and Eve could have obeyed, then they would have lived for eternity. They teach a salvation by works message. And then since they fell, right after that fall, the covenant of grace came in, and we've been in the covenant of grace the entire time. You can find dispensationalism within Scripture, you cannot find covenant of works or covenant of grace within scripture. And when you start digging into what they mean by that, it's a faulty system. It's a faulty theology. They view most of the time, most of the time, they view all passages as soteriological, meaning what must I do to have eternal life? When we looked at perseverance, when you asked a question as far as enduring, you look at Matthew 24, I think it's verse 13, endure to the end, you'll be saved. They see that enduring to the end, meaning if you're a Christian, you're going to endure to the end, and that's how you know you have eternal life. They see it as soteriological. They ignore the fact that it's talking about Israel, the Jewish people during the tribulation period, and oh, the Jewish remnant is going to be preserved. They overlook that. Matthew 7, verse 15 onward, where it says, by their fruit you will know them. It says, a good tree can't bring forth a evil fruit, and the evil tree can't bring forth good fruit. 
by the fruits you will know them. So you say, see, if you have evil fruit, then you're not a Christian. They're seeing soteriology in their eternal life. But the funny thing is, is a good tree can bring forth a Christian. If we're going to say a Christian is a good tree, you think a Christian can bring forth evil fruit? Oh, yeah. You think if the evil tree is an atheist, you think an evil tree can bring forth quote-unquote good works? In the world's eyes, they could, you know, not in God's eyes, but in the world's eyes, yes. They see most of these passages as dealing with salvation. John 15, salvation. 1 John, salvation. James 2, salvation. That's under what they hold to as far as covenant theology. They interpret the Old Testament with the New Testament. Because they see the church today, they put the church in the Old Testament and try to have a, no longer a distinction between Israel and the church, but they, see if I can articulate this well. All the teachings of the church are placed in the Old Testament, and then they want to go ahead and pull, I can't even really articulate it well right now, I'm having a brain fart. See, Hunter, you're not the only one. <laughs> but suffice it to say for now, it leads to replacement theology. And so when they're trying to interpret the old with the new, they're taking principles of the New Testament that were foreign in the Old Testament, okay? The church was foreign. That will ultimately lead to replacement theology and the fact that the church has replaced Israel. And so all the covenants that God has made with Israel are now given to the church. And so now the Abrahamic covenant is given to the church. The new covenant is given to the church. The Davidic covenant is given to the church. They see the church replacing Israel because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 12. They see that Jesus Christ took it off and gave it to the church. And now there's no need for the Jewish people under covenant theology. And if you were to ask me or any anybody in this church, when's Jesus Christ going to come back? It's when Jewish people accept them as Messiah and call him back. And so if the Jewish people are crucial to the return of Christ to fulfill the iniquity of Jacob in Isaiah 26, I think it is, 27 verse 6, then an anti-Semitic theology is very satanic. Because just like Islam's main tenet is to kill all the Jews, so too replacement theology is seeing no need for the Jewish people or Israel. And if there's no need and there's a rise of anti-Semitism, oh, by the way, Luther, then you have this issue of exterminating the Jewish people, the Holocaust, stuff like that. They often view prophecy as figurative, whether it's uh, Revelation, when you get to the thousand-year reign of Christ, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, any prophecy dealing with the end times, it's often uh, viewed and interpreted figuratively, which leads to an amillennial view of the kingdom of God. Again, amillennial meaning there's no thousand-year reign of Christ. It's just a figurative, symbolic meaning. And so this is what's under the banner of covenant theology. What's interesting is most time we'll say that dispensationalism is a recent invention by whether it was Darby or Ryrie, but Dr. Charles Ryrie pulls out the fact that covenant theology, this framework, was actually first, ad not adopted, but first found within church writings in the mid-1500s. So this was about 1,500 years after the church. 1,500 years after, then came covenant theology. And we can see dispensationalism within the pages of Scripture. And so that's why so many people hold to a bad understanding of James 2. 
is because they're reformed. They fall under a view of covenant theology with a poor hermeneutic. They don't interpret scripture consistently. They place too much focus on symbolism and figurative use. So, which leads me to this, and we're almost done. These are different types of contexts, right? Whenever we think of context, when we're reading scripture, and we're like, well, what's the context? Well, there's a lot of context that we have to look at when we're actually exegeting and digging into scripture. You have the immediate context, right? The immediate one's kind of simple. What does the verse say? What's immediately happening in the verse or passage? Surrounding, okay? Pastor out in South Dakota, I've really adopted this. It's a general rule, not hard and fast, but 2020 rule. What do the verses 20 verses before and 20 verses after say? What's the surrounding context? So think of it like a target. You've probably seen this illustration before, bullseye. You've got your bullseye on a dartboard, so you've got a red dot, and you got a larger ring, and a larger ring, and a, it's like that. So you have your immediate context, your surrounding context. You have your historical context. What's going on in the history of the people that are writing this letter and that are receiving it? Because these are actual letters in historical events of people that actually lived. And so if I truly want to understand what was going on, I want to really try to understand the history behind what's happening then, which is why we always spend at least one or two weeks when we start a book getting the history of what's going on in the time period because that's very crucial to understanding it. What was the culture like during the time, you know? So when there's different figurative uh, uses, different figures of speech used, uh, as far as Jesus calling uh, his mother woman, to our day today, I'd call my mom woman. I'm going to get smacked. But in the culture of the day, we understand that was not a negative thing. That was common in the day, and it was not frowned upon. And so understanding the culture will allow us to understand some passages. What is the literary context? Not literal, but literary. Understand all 66 books fall within a particular genre. What is the historical genre, the, the gospels, the epistles, the apocalyptic literature? What about wisdom, proverbs? What about uh, poetry, psalms, things like that? That's going to allow us to understand if it's literal or whether it's symbolic. Dispensational, what time period is this found? If we're looking in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Law, then we need to look at Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Not necessarily about the church, which is how the New Testament is put into the Old Testament, like covenant theology, but we have to understand what's going on in Jeremiah's day. 29.11, they're talking to Israel in bondage because they put themselves there for breaking the Mosaic Covenant. Same thing with Malachi chapter number five, where Malachi says, by God, he says, bring your tithes and offerings to the temple and see if I don't open a window of blessing, pour out. People today are taking the New Testament, interpreting the old with it, and saying, church, if we give God our tithes, he's going to give us some financial blessings. But what covenant is that under? That's under the Mosaic Covenant. That's with Israel. Israel, when you study the covenants, they were under what's known as the law of the tithe. They covenanted with God that, yes, I will give my tithe. Because part of that tithe went to the priest because the priest didn't get any land. They didn't get any promised land. Every other tribe did, but they didn't. So part of that tithe went to the priest. It was to take care of the priest as well. That has to do with Israel, not the church. What dispensation? Okay, now we're getting back to the surrounding, the immediate, the book context. 
How does, if I'm drawing out a principle, faith without works is dead, how does that principle of, I'm not a real Christian if I don't have good works, how does that fit within the principle of the entire book that I'm reading and studying, the letter of James? And then, oh, by the way, how does that principle fit within the totality of Scripture? Remember the controversy, Paul versus James? Paul says it's by faith alone. James says faith without works is dead. Is there a controversy? Now the principle? Maybe I'm wrong in thinking faith without works is dead, and now I'm not a genuine Christian, and I'm going to hell because I'm not doing good things right now. Either I'm wrong, or Paul or James, one of those are wrong. Could it be that both Paul and James are accurate and right? I would say so. So maybe my principle is wrong. How dare I challenge my own self, right? But that's what's happening. So let me ask you the question. In the book of James, we spent a considerable amount of time talking about the background, the history, what he's already talked about in the letter. So let me ask you, what was the, we'll go, we'll not look at all these. We'll say, historically speaking, what's happening to the people in James's day? He's writing to who? Who's he writing to? Scattered abroad. What is the big deal about being scattered? Dispersion, okay. So they're under persecution. Okay, so they're under persecution. Twelve tribes right to Jewish Christians. So Jewish Christians during that day. All right. So uh, let's look at surrounding context. We could do the book. They sort of tie in. What did James just get done talking about in chapter 2? So verses 1 through 13, what did James just get done talking about? We were here a few weeks back. No, that was chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse number 1, he starts talking about playing favorites. He starts talking about if you have somebody come into your synagogue and you have a rich person come in with goodly apparel and you have a poor person come in, he's saying, stop giving the best seat to the rich person and having the poor person sit over there on the ground. Stop doing that. Okay, so he just got done telling them what to stop doing. It's interesting, in James chapter 2, verse number 17, he says, do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? So in James chapter 2, verse number 7, James clearly tells them, I know you're Christians. He uses the term brethren 15 times in the letter. He says, I know you're Christians. They're blaspheming the name that you're, you're called by, Christians. They were called Christians first at Antioch. But they're playing partiality. So maybe they do have evil works, so much evil works that the pastor of the church in Jerusalem is calling all of them out on. And if James thinks they're a Christian, then maybe they really are. Maybe the dead faith they have and the fact that they don't have good works doesn't have to do with them not being Christians because James just said they're Christians. What did he just say in chapter 1? Trials. Hunter just taught on that last week. Trials. And, and taking the trials joyfully and to fight the temptation in the midst of your struggles. We talked about ethics a while back. That ethics led to their playing a partiality on who could take care of the synagogue. They were doing bad things. So much that the pastor of the Jerusalem church had to write them a letter and say, stop. Even though you're Christian, stop. So what sense would it make in the passage, faith without works is dead, to say, if you're not doing good works, you're probably not a Christian. He just told them they're Christians. Christians. 
He just said how many bad things they're doing. Faith without works is dead, has nothing to do with your eternal standing with God. It has everything to do with your practical living here. And that's what we'll look at. Dr. Charlie Bing says this. He says, the passage in James is written to Christians to encourage them to do good works, which will make their faith mature and profitable to them and others. There is no contradiction between James and Paul. When Paul speaks of justification through faith alone, he is speaking of judicial righteousness before God. When James speaks of justification by faith that works, he is speaking of a practical righteousness displayed before other people. In Romans 3 through 5, Paul is discussing how to obtain a new life and in James, James is talking about how to make that new life profitable. Dr. Tony Evans says this about this passage. In James chapter 2, verse number 14, he says, James and Paul, some people think James is contradicting Paul, but James and Paul are not talking about the same things. Paul is talking about how a sinner becomes a saint. James is talking about how a saint brings heaven to earth. It's about actively living your faith, which is the title of this series. So how do everybody in the church hold to this view that if you don't have works, you're not a true Christian? Well, it's the bandwagon fallacy, to be perfectly blunt. Bandwagon fallacy essentially is the fact that a, an idea, an argument is adopted because it's the popular opinion. It's the majority. And when you look most colleges, most seminaries, most books, most apologists, most preachers on radio, most preachers on TV, and most people who follow preachers are all reformed. Look it up. All your seminaries are reformed. All your colleges are reformed. Most all your ministries are reformed. All your heavy radio, TV preachers are all reformed. Why is it so popular? Because that's what a lukewarm Christian is being fed. We're no longer studying scripture, dividing the word of God. We're studying the people on what they say. When you ask a Calvinist or a lordship, why do you believe that? First thing they're going to do is quote some Calvinist or lordshipper. Oh, John MacArthur, oh, John Calvin, oh, Spurgeon, whatever the case is. Their first inclination is almost never to quote scripture. They will always go to an authority, fallacy of authority. And so this is why it's so prevalent today. There are accurate, non-reformed preachers and teachers available. Most people either don't care, they don't know, or they want to be fed what the Word of God says, as opposed to actually study and really think it out. A while back, I taught a message called, Why Interpretation Matters. Interpretation matters a great deal. Because if we take this passage and say, if you don't have works, then you're not a true Christian, most likely. That takes my eyes off of Christ for my salvation and my security and puts it on me, which I'm going to fail every single day, if not every single week, right? It also allows me to say, okay, God, you promised that I have eternal life, but yet I have to constantly check myself. I have to see if I measure up to my own standards, let alone yours. I can't do that. And then now I'm judging other people. You say you're a Christian, but you're doing X, Y, or Z. There's condemnation, not reconciliation there. If you haven't seen that teaching, I would encourage you to check it out. It's called Why Interpretation Matters. It was done here at the church. And it really looks at some of these passages, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith, and what damage it does to the person. We have enough of the world telling us what's wrong with us. We have enough of the world telling us how we don't measure up to society's standards. 
when these Christians were going through the dispersion and they were being persecuted for their faith, do we really think God said, oh, I know you're being persecuted for your faith, but if you're not taking care of that homeless person, you're not even a Christian. How does that make you think of the character of God? Evil, tyrannical, malevolent. Is that the character of God? No, God is love. Here we know. So that's the views that a lot of people hold to on this passages and the bad application that comes from it. Were you going to say something, Matt? I was just going to say, as Christians, our motivation is to do things in love. So if yeah. I just tell somebody about Christ, uh, I'm doing it because I have his love and I want to share that with them so they can have uh, what I have. Whereas that is not, that produces yeah. an attitude that's not in love. Am I doing it because I genuinely want to do it? Yep. Because I love the person, or am I doing it because I want to uh, obtain or maintain or whatever my salvation? Exactly. Which, in practical application, there's really no difference between obtaining, maintaining your salvation. Okay. At the end of the day, you're just working to get it. Or in that view. It's like a yeah. lot of those Calvinists would say, uh, do you have... Right. Mm-hmm. You might say, like, well, I'm 99% sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm 99.8% sure. You're totally right. So, you yep. know, so there's always that thing in the back of your mind of, you know, yep. I have to do this for, my, for myself yep. for, so, that I can, yep. so that I can obtain or so I can be sure so I can have comfort myself. That doesn't yep. maintain, doesn't mean you have a Christian attitude of, Mm-mm. no, I just want to do this because I love God. Right. And I just want to share this with other people. Yep. And two things I'll say and we'll be done is, the big difference between lordship and what we believe uh, as far as free grace is concerned, they do good works for salvation to prove they're saved or whatever. We do good works because of salvation. Jesus Christ said, let your light shine so that people may see your good works and what? Know that you're a Christian? No. The whole purpose of us doing good works is so that we glorify our Father in heaven. That's the big difference. People are being taught to do good works to prove they're a Christian, let not do good works because of salvation and to glorify our Father in heaven. And so next week, we'll really get into this passage, sort of break it up, talk about some of the verses and the the words we talked about tonight. But this is a big overview as far as where do so many people go wrong and get it wrong and why? Bandwagon fallacy. And so we're being told what to believe. So... Let us pray. God, I thank you again for the book of James and its relevance in our lives 2,000 years later. Lord, allow us, as we're going through this letter, really think about where we're failing, where we need to grow, where we need to encourage others, and how we need to be equipped. And God, I pray that the Spirit would just uh, continue to assure us of our salvation, not because of anything we're doing, but because of the finished work of Christ on the cross for our salvation. So we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.